Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Nasreen Mostafazadeh. Nasreen is the co-founder of Vernique. Nasreen, welcome back to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me again, Sam. For those that recognize the name, Nasreen is a longtime friend of the show, and this is your third interview, maybe? The last time we caught up was in January of 2020, before so much in the world changed. <laughs> and we were talking about trends in natural language processing. And today we'll, of course, be talking a little bit about that, but we'll be focusing on some big changes in your world since we last spoke and starting with the company that you founded. So maybe catch us up a little bit on, on big changes in your world since the, the last time. Absolutely. Well, it's so interesting that the last time that I talked with you was January 2020. It was precisely 3rd of January 2020. And the reason I remember this is that you may recall, it was literally the day after U.S. basically went on the brink of having a war with Iran. So we were all extremely stressed. That was a night I literally didn't sleep. We were all like checking our phones, trying to see whether or not there will be a literally a war. And it was just, just a very bizarre time. So that's kind of how 2020 started for, for a bunch of us, mm. not even knowing where it's headed. So even 3rd of January was a very, very weird year. So anyway, since then, that very event actually played a major role in how the rest of my life went on from that point on. So basically, there were so, so many other things that happened. Like on 8th of January, there was this plane that was downed with like 176 uh, people on it, a lot of them Iranians, some of whom I literally went to school with, who could have been literally me. So after so much thinking, I always, you know, I've been working in the startup scene for the last five years or so, and I truly believe in uh, wanting to make impact through the power of startups and through being able to laser focus at a particular fundamental problem in real world. So anyways, I always wanted to, to do this. And this whole series of events in, around like January and February 2020 made me kind of think how blessed I am as an individual and the kind of opportunities that I have and I'm not necessarily leveraging with all the people that didn't even get to live to want to fulfill their dreams. Like it felt like mm -hmm. it's time, so I should just, just do it and go for it. So anyways, uh, the process of starting Vernick was so many in progress, basically, but it was always about waiting for the right time for the right time. And then in February 2020, I was like, that's it. I'm going to start it. And hilariously, the first day, basically, official first day of Vernick is March 1st, 2020, <laughs> not knowing what we are really up for. Yeah. So we had all these, Omid, my co-founder and I, we had all these. Plans. And in New York City. Plans. Exactly. Yeah. 
we had all these grand plans of starting this deep tech AI company in New York City with like a bunch of plans as to when we will go fundraising, when we will hire our team. And of course, mid-March 2020, the you know shutdowns started and then we in April, so we realized that, okay, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. So the, the rest is kind of history. <laughs> it's The timing was impeccable, to say the least. So we basically kind of put everything on hold for a couple of months just to see where the world is going. Like it wasn't necessarily clear that anyone wanted to, to even think about a brand new AI company while everyone was basically licking their wounds. So yeah, we just waited a couple of months and then around like late 2020, we were like, okay, let's just go for it. So we started fundraising and in about a month or so we could like close our round and then we started hiring. And now we are based in New York City. We are in Flatiron. Specifically, it's like the dream neighborhood. We're working in a physical office. So this is our space. And it's been just a really, really great time to to want to do this, honestly, despite all the hurdles, how hard it was to go through the pandemic, to start a pandemic company, basically. I think it has helped us build all sorts of muscles that we never thought we can. And hence, we are really in a very good shape in terms of all the other uh, hurdles that we have to overcome moving forward. That's awesome. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. Thanks. So the company is as yet stealth and, and not much is known publicly about what you're up to, but you've promised that you're going to share a little bit of <laughs> pull back the kimono a bit, so to speak. What's the company up to? What are the, the challenges that you're hoping to take on? Absolutely. So our mission is to enable anyone to make data informed decisions before their personal matters or for their businesses without having uh, any kind of technical background. And uh, what that means is that we are uh, basically innovating in the human machine interfaces area where we want to replace hard to grasp things such as programming languages with other intuitive modalities of interaction, including of course, human natural language, which given our backgrounds is abundantly clear. But we are not just biased thinking that natural language is the answer to anything and everything in terms of intuitiveness, we are thinking actively and working actively towards other like modalities of interaction that would be really easy to use and intuitive in a given context. So basically this is like to a degree how much we usually share publicly, but I, I love talking with you. So uh, I would love to start sharing a little bit more in terms of our vision for Vernique and what kind of a technology we are building. So we are a deep tech company, meaning that we are overcoming various like scientific and engineering challenges that would ultimately enable us to build such a platform that I was talking for data-informed decision-making. So what does data-informed decision-making means? It means that there's all sorts of data out there. They can come in any shape or form. They can basically have any format. They could be any small, any large. They could basically be anything and everything. And when you want to put an interface on top of it and enable anyone to use it, like let's say get analytical ins insights about it or like just ask any kind of questions that they can they have that can help them better their lives or their better their uh, businesses, that means that you have to have interoperability and that means that you have to be domain general. We are not trying to build like something that will be just working in one sector. We don't want to build something that is going to be just in a particular domain 
operational, we want to build a truly domain general AI platform that can have interoperability across all sorts of data. So it's a pretty grand mission in terms of the technology that it needs. And we are actively working on all sorts of problems that in the academic sense has been an issue for the past couple of years as well. So we are working on basically building first and foremost intuitive and easy to use interfaces, including natural language. Building a domain general natural language interface in and of itself is very, very challenging. But mainly we are trying to make it controllable. We are trying to make sure that we assign provenance as to where the data source comes from and what kind of data we are basically putting in the loop. On top of it, we are trying to make sure that these basically interfaces that we put are controllable, meaning that we can have interaction with them and we can teach them or help them forget something that they've learned that was wrong. You're also trying to make sure that these models are actually able to get all sorts of feedback and make better decisions down the road for the sake of the user. So basically, uh, they should be able to not just base their decisions that they help the user make on one source, but like just bring all the bits and pieces together and basically do reasoning. But so many other characteristics that this this kind of a fundamental AI platform that we're building should have, including the fact that it should be amenable to data privacy issues. And so there's so many other things that we're actively working on, but in terms of our lines of AI research, we are, of course, working on conversational agents. We are building basically dialogue systems that have these features that I was just outlining. We are also working on like all sorts of learning phenomena that are not data hungry, that actually can help us go from a domain to another with like the least amount of time and the uh, least amount of uh, supervision, of course. But we also have problems on the data side itself. So building a platform that has interoperability across the board requires like innovations in distributed systems, requires innovations in building like runtime engines that can actually digest all sorts of data and understand it. So it's not just AI research that is a problem that we are tackling, but also, you know, other kind of computer science issues that we have to grapple with on a day-to-day basis. And I will add that we are very mindful of having it like design elements and design driven thinking to be the front and center of what we are building so that we don't kind of repeat the mistakes that have been made in general in the tech scene of like bunch of technical people getting together thinking they have a intuitive solution and then turns out it's really not usable so that's that's our front and center. We are really striving to build something that works for the masses as opposed to something that is just for the sake of pushing the boundaries of AI. Mm-hmm. How big is the team so far? We are a total of eight people. We had like six or so interns also that left us. So we are very small. We are mm-hmm. hiring across the board. We used to be just hiring on for like research team and the engineering team, but now we are also hiring on the business side. So we are hoping to grow to 12 or so more people as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. We wanted it yesterday, but hiring is the toughest, one of the toughest things Yeah, in my experience. Yeah. I ask because the you've outlined a pretty broad set of areas, not just that you want to build product in, but that you need to do fundamental mm-hmm. research in. And that sounds like a ton for eight people. <laughs> oh my God, it is a ton. Now, before we get to kind of how you take that on, maybe 
another way of coming at that is like, how do you think about the MVP for the products? Like when I think of version of the the vision you outlined, I think of something like a natural language query generator, but those exist. They're not without challenges. Like how, how do you think about the the MVP and how do you contrast with something like natural language query generation? <laughs> Good question. So I will just first and foremost say something as a, in like in parentheses, we call MVP Legom Vernique. So Legom is this Swedish term. I don't know if you're familiar with it. That means just the right amount. Mm-hmm. I just personally, like we take issues, Omid and I, we take issues on like minimum viable product, often not being really minimum and not being really viable. So it's very yeah. <laughs> super vague. So anyways, the question is, what's just the right amount for us, right? Yeah. Which is what we've been dealing with for the past like year now doing like R&D until we get to a point that we're comfortable with taking our product out. I would say complex question, what the Legone basically should be for our domain. On the business side, what we're doing is that we are very practical. We are taking this technology one domain at a time. We are like right now focusing on a particular domain, for example, that we are hoping to come uh, out with in the next couple of months. And in that particular domain, then you have this you know flexibility of narrowing down the data that you're training on, narrowing down basically the, the capabilities as well, right? So for example, right now, we, we know that we want our system to be instantaneous and it is. So we have like a threshold that we know, okay, if it's responding after one second, it's like definitely a downer. But if it is like, we, we can just keep pushing the boundary. So there are such parameters that we are kind of tuning. But anyways, so in terms of the it, taking it one domain at a time, we are doing that, but we have this rule in house that we are like, if it is basically diverging more than 20% from the general domain general platform, we are just working too much on one particular domain. So basically we are making our Legome or MVP to be an 80% of the same kind of code base, same kind of technology that we would have and spending 20% of time in a particular domain without it generalizing out of it. So it's it's been, it's not easy, I would say. And I think I will have a more clear answer to that when we are out with our product. I know what I said is a little vague as to what the MVP should be, but there's so much to talk about in terms of how to curate the the exact packaging of such a technology so that it's still meaningful. You can get enough signal back from the market and from the actual users and then keep iterating. Mm -hmm. And is the example of some kind of natural language query, is that directionally accurate enough to give us some, to provide some concrete grounding for the conversation. sounds like you're going domain at a time. So I'm envisioning you pick a domain. Who knows what that domain is? Let's say contracts, you know, legal contracts, right? And so some lawyers want to do discovery and it's hard for them to find what they want. And so you're essentially giving them a box to type in and you're doing smarter things with what they type in to get them to turn that into a query that you can run against whatever systems they're trying to search against as an example. But that's the unstructured text example. There's the structured text example. You're working with you know, power companies and you're trying to help them manage their grids better or something. And you give them a, a box to 
tell me the aggregate power across whatever, whatever, six regions. Yes. I guess I'm, you know, the picture that is, is coming to mind is maybe AI or natural language interfaces for like business intelligence types of tools or problems. It does. Yes, that's, that's very close. The, we can talk for hours and hours, right, about the state of the field, like what are the relevant technologies, how they're fa- failing and why they're failing and why what we're doing is is really different. But yes, at the end of the day, it's it resembles that. So basically, let me t- give you an example. This is not what we are doing right now. But one of the reasons we wanted to do what we are doing is that even as technologists, it's so hard to make decisions based off of your data because it just requires so many bells and whistles. So for example, you just asked me right before this, like, what did you eat for breakfast? Right. And I told you, well, I don't eat breakfast. So as an individual, I do intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. I have this app that I'm recording the number of hours that I'm not eating a day. I've been just doing it habitually in the past couple of years. Then I have this other app where I'm recording what I'm eating every day. And then uh, just because I have some like underlying conditions that I have to be careful with whatever X, Y, and Z that I'm like putting in my body, basically. And then I have this other app where I'm like basically recording my weight. I I hop on a scale, weight to scale every morning personally. So there's this app that is capturing the data from uh, my health on a day-to-day basis, on my weight on a day-to-day basis. So anyways, as an individual like myself, although I'm a technical person, it's so hard for me to get the answer to a question like, I don't know, what is there any correlation between my weight loss and the number of hours that I'm intermittent fasting, right? Yeah. And why is it hard? Because it requires me figuring out how to download the data from all of those apps. And then if you even can. If you even can, exactly. And then maybe, I don't know, going to an like opening up note like a iPython notebook and trying to remember what is the correlation function of some sort and then trying to call it and then <laughs> coming up with an answer, right? It just takes so much time. And I am a technical person. So imagine what the world looks like for other individuals and small businesses who have all these kinds of data and they are making wrong decisions on a day-to-day basis because of their lack of access to such easy to use interfaces. So anyways, we want to very much in line with what you said, we are not uh, like basically doing any of these things that I mentioned right now, but in the long run for the company, that's the vision. We want it to be that we have this one interface that we can put on top of anything and everything, and it can smartly navigate its way to find the right sources and then come back with their results. But it definitely is basically like a natural language uh, querying interface. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned, we believe in the tremendous value that other modalities of interaction uh, bring into the scene. And that's something that has been definitely neglected. But on top of it, you know, I've, I've worked on natural language understanding basically my whole uh, like life, like not even adult life, my, like whatever, 15 years, right? They're just no one knows how to build a domain general language interface like that. We've had tremendous progress in the field in the past couple of years, which is why likes of myself uh, are motivated to want to finally take uh, this kind of technology to the market so that we can get clear signal as to the flaws, right? And the problems and the solutions and feed it back into the basically academic AI world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We could go down the rabbit hole of wearables and personal health tech and all that kind of stuff. And maybe that's a 
a fourth conversation. But <laughs> for now, I think the, the thread that I want to pull a little bit on is the state of AI research in the domains relevant to what you're trying to build. Uh, because a lot of what your contention is, is, hey, the idea of a, a search box that you know, let you find things out, right? That's something we've been pursuing for a while, but we've been failing. And some of that is execution and, or different execution, different vision. But some of it is that the research or the technology just fundamentally isn't there. Mm -hmm. And so maybe a, a, a next place to explore is where you see the gaps in the technology and how you're using that assessment to kind of prioritize the way you're approaching research at Veronique. Absolutely. So I think this is very much actually in continuation of the conversation we had in January 2020. Mm. when you know, I was reviewing basically the state of the field. If you you may recall, so my net was that we've come a very long way in natural language understanding uh, and natural language processing in general in the past, like, now six years or so it's been tremendous how much progress we've made not on just downstream tasks but also on real world products basically that have been impacted by these kind of technologies but i characterize like the flaws in a few ways that i think some of which are now kind of being addressed by the recent developments so like just to backtrack a little bit so it's kind of interesting. So I started my personal work in natural language understanding because I was back in time. This is back in high school. I used to work in robotics. Then I switched to natural language understanding and common sense reasoning in particular because I came across this motivating example that I saw in a random book that was like for an AI system, for a machine to understand natural language, it requires to put together lots of bits and pieces about the world that it is grounded in. And hence, it's the so-called AI complete problem. So the motivating example was that the monkey ate the banana because it was hungry. And is the it referring to the monkey or the banana? Mm -hmm. Basically, was the, the riddle for the AI system. So I literally, literally started my life in national language understanding for, for that very same problem, for tackling that very same problem, which I found fascinating. And then fast forward, these kind of problems were really not the focus for the field for a very long time, until in 2015 and 16 or so that these, you know, at the time it was like bio LSTMs that were suddenly starting to leave their mark on some common sense reasoning and national language understanding benchmarks, so much so that it was touted as the solution. But then, of course, with the Transformers in 2017 or so, everything changed for the better so much so that it just kept kept going, right? We had all these other models. And mm -hmm. for me personally, always, I was on the camp of questioning whether or not any of this is real progress. As someone that cared about common sense reasoning, which is uh, sort of historically been this line of thinking about reasoning, which supposedly conflicts with like machine learning and uh, stochastic like look into to the data etc so anyways for me it was very natural to want to be biased against the progress so much so that in 2016 basically the work that i personally did was on building a the story close test benchmark which was basically trying to push these systems to showcase whether or not they have any sort of common sense reasoning by continuing this like a short 
story and basically finishing the story right in a right way that is like reasonable and logical. When I did that work, the intention was to assess whether or not these models have common sense. And I wasn't that convinced that they do. I wasn't that convinced that they have any reasoning capabilities. And then the transformers came, of course, GPT-1 did a great job on story close tests. And then we were like, oh, is it just picking up on the intricacies of the data? Is it just basically learning the biases that exist in the data, data set and not doing true natural language understanding? And then turned out that maybe it was to a degree, but we even changed the test set to another version of story close test that was kind of debiased. And then GPT-1 was basically the only model that could sustain its performance. And anyways, still I'm in a skeptical, let's say, and I'm like, okay, I want to see deeper language understanding and deeper common sense reasoning. And then GPT-3 came out basically this in 2020 that was doing zero-shot performance on a story class test, meaning using none of the training data at all. And it was getting to 80-something percent performance, which if you had told uh, me in grad school, I would not have thought is possible, right, in 2020. Mm-hmm. So these, this is tremendous progress, right? I think it's really hard for us to try to sweep it under the rug that these models are not showing any fundamental language understanding and all they're doing is pattern recognition because one can even argue what it is that we do as understanding human beings and how much of it is recognizing patterns and the priors we have built on the world throughout our lifetime. I think this is tremendous progress. And I'll add one other note that since this, to me, the a progress of the field of natural language understanding has been so intertwined with my personal line of research as well. So in 2020, I also did this really interesting work that I personally believed in with my great colleagues at Elemental Cognition called Glucose that was basically about building these word models while you're reading a story. So story close test was all about read four sentences, predict the ending, but now let's go way beyond that that's just not just predict ending, but also come up with these deep, like a uh, word model of person's kind of set of states and like events and their causal chains and like draw a coherent picture of the narrative that you're building. Let's make this as the new uh, basically benchmark for evaluating whether or not a system is showing any sort of deep understanding. Mm-hmm. So anyways, this was, we, you know, came up with this work and basically did all of it, which, you know, we can delve deeper, dive deeper into. But it, when it came out, was it like two or three months after uh, the GPT-3 work? And it's fascinating how GPT-3 was doing better than GPT-2 on, if, even in this particular, basically, task of ours and how far it has gone in showing that it has some sort of a board model. So I personally think that whoever kind of claims that these models do not have any word model, don't have any kind of a human-like cognition, don't have any deep understanding of language, it's, it's really incorrect to say the least. Mm-hmm. Of course, these models are fundamentally flawed, no question, right? We talked about this in the last session that these models are extremely biased. They are uh, really easy to get tricked, which makes them, in my opinion, brittle. You know how like it was the, the thing to call symbolic models back in time brittle. I think these models are also yeah. 
quite brutal, right? It's easy to, to for them to get sidetracked and make really stupid mistakes, although they work, say, well, like often. And, you know, of course, these models are also really not controllable, which, as I mentioned, is something that we are working actively at Vernik on. So these are all flaws that they have, no question. But I think saying that these models do not have a word model, do not have any understanding is is really not correct. Mm -hmm. That was one of the contentions of the Stochastic Pirates paper, wasn't it? Yes, we can talk for hours and hours about this as well. So many things to talk, so many hours about. (laughs) I personally think that, look, these models are really great pattern recognizers. And one can argue that recognizing patterns and then trying to stitch them together is not real understanding. But I would refute that and I would say that, look, At the end of the day, for me as a researcher, all I could do throughout the past six years or so was to think about ways of evaluating like NLU systems for deeper understanding. And these models are proving consistently that they're making progress towards doing what constitutes as having understanding. Mm. So we can, of course, argue what, what is a good benchmark. I think benchmarking is one of the problems we've had for years and years. We are making progress. But for me, one of the reasons that why I want to work in startups is to build something in real world that actually works for end users in the messy, noisy, real-world environments as opposed to our lab settings. So that's definitely a problem we have, that we have really narrow, inherently narrow and biased benchmarks. But setting that aside, I think that, you know, this is like kind of theoretical, right? Like there are people who don't believe in distributional semantics being the like expression kind of meaning that you can represent and believe that formal semantics and formal kind of meaning representation is the way to go, which... I would argue against, I think, having a way of representing meaning distributionally, sort of representing a word by the context in which it just is often occurring at is a viable representation of meaning. So I think as at the end of the day, if we have the right benchmarks for evaluating representation uh, of meaning, we have the right benchmarks for evaluating common sense reasoning, and if these models pass them, that that tells you something. And this is the take I had when GPT-3 work came out. So many people were asking my opinion as to how I think about this, because, you know, I was one of the proponents of let's push these systems for deeper understanding and like they're not, they're really lacking it. But the truth is we've made progress. I would say that we need to move the, basically the bar. We should raise the bar, of course, as to uh, pushing these models to go further and further, but they've definitely come, come very far already. So I don't think that uh, these models are parrots, really. It depends on the definition, of course, of, of a parrot. But if it means that it's really just repeating without having any kind of an understanding, I think that's that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So going back to kind of the the state of, of research broadly and the the gaps that need to be overcome for you to accomplish what you're trying to do at Vernique. It sounds like the first one of those is, or the first area, you know, of exploration is just understanding in general, in order for you to do what you're trying to do, you need a system to be able to understand to some degree or another, or according to some metrics, the 
what the user is trying to express in whatever box they're typing in or whatever interface they're using. And it sounds like you're saying that models that you would lean on for that understanding are broken in lots of ways. And that's part of what you need to research is how to fix the ways that they're broken, you know, bias and transparency, explainability, however you want to put that. You have seen enough evidence of enough understanding for you to do what you're trying to do for them to be promising. Yes, absolutely. And honestly, not even just talking about the particular technology that we are building at Vernig, but generally for the field, I think that, well, first and foremost, I hope that so many people will work on so many other directions of AI so that we really have diversity of thought. We have diversity of thinking. We have other models that may get to flourish. If anything, deep learning trend has taught us that by a couple of people not giving up on what they believed in, they could prove us all wrong, right? And then like all the amazing progress that we are seeing is proof of that, basically. But anyways, on our end in particular, for the sake of natural language understanding, yes, I think these models are to have tremendous flaws, but they've shown enough evidence of being basically foundational, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So I know that this is also something pretty controversial right now like when stanford started calling these this whole like transfer learning and pre-training and fine-tuning paradigm foundation models so many people started raising eyebrows as to okay foundation should be reliable foundations should be uh something that you can poke in like (laughs) just change things which i completely agree but setting the kind of arguing over the terminology aside I think that these models have shown enough evidence that they can give us like lexical and word knowledge, which I think are very foundational for building natural language understanding and dialogue systems. Like I come from the school of thought of people who have spent their lifetime trying to build semantic parsers, which is which has to do with these formal like semantics of representing each and every word in a way that like conforms to an ontology and then how you would go about like representing a verb in conjunction with something else and like connecting the dots and everything so that you can represent the meaning and then on top of it building a dialogue system that recognizes intents and like tracks and does planning and everything so i think that what these models are doing and you know you they are even very promising in doing things in a multilingual sense but anyways, these, what these models are doing is that they are enabling us to really let go of some of these pipeline like things that we had in NLP and just not starting from scratch, basically starting from a model that comes with some sort of a lexical and word knowledge and turns out common sense knowledge baked in. in a sh- they have flaws, as you mentioned, and we've talked about the fact that they're not controllable, the fact that they're not transparent and the fact that you can't let them like teach them interactively and let them forget about things that they're doing wrongly. These are all problems that need to be fixed, which may require its own paradigm shift. Could be architecturally, could be on the data side. But I think, yes, to answer your question in one final sentence, these models have shown enough evidence that they could be used as foundations so that we don't start from scratch. So it sounds like some controllability of language models is one of the areas what are some of the other areas uh, of research that you're 
digging into? Yes, controllability is one, absolutely. So our line of thinking is that we believe in, I think I've seen people use this terminology, so I'll try to repeat it, retrieval augmented generation. So we want to make sure that we don't build, you know, like wishy-washy language models at the end of the day, just you don't know where their information is coming from. We want our models to be able to retrieve from existing data sources. As I mentioned, it's all about data-informed decision-making. We want to you as a user to know where your information is coming from, or if we are like actively telling you what basically we think, we want you to know the source of it. So we want to basically work on ways of retrieving what is out there with the resource and the provenance intact. Mm -hmm. This is another thing that we are pursuing. And in general, generalization, right? We want to build a domain general platform. How do you make it so that the models that you have are truly generalizable, right? This is a this has been an ongoing line of work for in deep learning for many years, but it's you know, of course not solved. I think the last two years or so has been phenomenal in terms of how much more flexible and generalizable these models are, but it's still not, there, there's a very, very long way to go. The other thing is a data array. These models are extremely data hungry. I love how there has been a lot of progress on kind of zero shot and in context learning kind of paradigms. But at the end of the day, still wherever you go to a new domain and you see this first of the first hand when you work in a real world setting like in a startups the, these models are truly data hungry right how can you make it so that these models are more sample efficient and they don't really need that much training data for adapting to a new domain and this is for us of utmost priority because we literally want to make a domain general model so how do we ju just go from a domain to another on the technology side without spending a lot of time just collecting data and then tuning models learning like new intricacies of that that existing domain mm -hmm. and i will add that i see a lot of value in someone like myself having spent time thinking about problems that it, like a pure deep learning person would not have had and the value that it kind of brings to building a real world product. So the, the, we need to work on how to build conversational agents, right? It's not just about natural language understanding, like one utterance at a time, but it has a lot to do with uh, word modeling, really, and kind of building a belief system, right? The, the oldest school kind of dialogue systems had this framework called BDI that was really cool. So belief, desire, intention. Mm -hmm. So when you have a full-fledged conversation with someone, you basically think about building models, basically, and you think about them, about what the other party knows, what they don't know, what you know, how you can help them reach to a certain goal, and you plan, right? Yeah. So the existing systems out there don't really do any planning, right? These are all kinds of things that need to to be worked on. How do you basically build a sustainable word model that includes the sets of beliefs, desires, and intentions, and you dynamically basically monitor, right, what's happening? And another thing is this is also very important is that uh, we need to have memory, right? Systems at the end of the day, controllability comes from them being able to store what they've learned from the interactions, se separate from their actual uh, like prior knowledge, separate from their other kind of conditions so that they can make an informed basically decision. And these are also all kinds of things that are not in these so-called like foundation models, right? And need to be worked on. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, given again, kind of the breadth of all of these things that you need to figure out in order to to build a product, how do you scope that down? Like, you know, each of those could be a you know a four year PhD effort, right? Or many, right? Yes. How do you scope that down and <laughs> connect that to your mission as a startup founder to get a product out the door that meets a need? Yes. <laughs> so we are not, of course, I outlined our years of planning, right? Uh, outlined the p- kind of problems that we have to work on. It doesn't mean that we're working on it at this moment or mm-hmm. you need to work on it immediately. So that just to answer you on the business side, how we are uh, practical. But to be honest with you, the so last like year and a half now has been truly the most rewarding part of my entire life, literally, in terms of just seeing firsthand how far you can go when you have no other choice but to innovate, but to just keep working at what you need to. And the truth is, although we're very small, and which is the nature of a lot of startups anyways, there's so much you can do if you really, you know, get scrappy and like know where to spend your time and effort. So we have this thing in, at Verney that, I don't know if you know what I'm going to just mention. So there used to be this meme going on that, was the sketching of Spider-Man that was done in 10 seconds versus the sketching of it in 10 minutes by an actual artist. So even if you are the master of your skill being art, you can always produce something in 10 seconds and you should be always able to to do it. And then there is a 10 minute version, of course, that will be your best work. So that's the approach that we take at Verney for anything. And we say this to all of our employees and it's even said it to all of our interns that look, you have you don't have 10 minutes, you have 10 seconds, you have to have a first version of this go go for it. We we've done it on the design side as well. Like our we have an exceptional designer and when she started we were like you have two weeks you have to come up with a full fledged okay, UI UX and just go for it and she really did it and this is a test we do even when we are doing interviews so anyways we we are not working on everything and anything at once a lot of what i outline or on our in our kind of a longer term planning but i think we've gotten really good at uh, trying to to do a 10 second version of everything just to to know that we we have a something in place mm-hmm. um, yeah got it got it and you know if you were advising you know someone who was thinking about starting a, a deep tech type of startup what are kind of the general principles that you would suggest or or put forth for translating you know, going from this kind of gap in the research to, to product, like what are the general ideas there? Principles, huh? Well, I don't know if I have principles necessarily. Yeah, well, th- to me, honestly, so there were so many reasons why I wanted to embed myself in this startup scene as opposed to like other maybe industry research labs or even academia. And I think the main driver is and should be the fact that you want to build an AI system that actually works. So I think for anyone who is working on a fundamental, like a research at a fundamental research setting, they can see what kind of thing they're really passionate about and see how far it has gone in like, you know, lab settings and see if it makes sense for it to want to be basically in an actual product. So I don't know if I have necessarily principles, but I can just talk a little bit more about my own frustration as to the progress that I couldn't make outside of this this kind of startup world. 
that may resonate with someone out there mm-hmm. that they might see it themselves as well. Mm-hmm. What were those? So I would say that, so I spent about like a year and a half or so back when I was in grad school in industry research labs. And to me, at the end of the day, publishing for the sake of publishing was not really satisfactory. So as much as the, we are all seeing the fruits of academic, like scientific research, right, and sharing, which we will, you know, do at Veronique as well, is part of our, I think, duty, right, as researchers to contribute back. Like having it as the main thing that drives you, the main thing that you have to report on, the main thing that you care about is very counterproductive to me, right? And I feel like, okay, I'm spending all of this time of mine on uh, basically this, this this line of work, uh, where is it going, right? What kind of value am I bringing to the broader world? So that's like one of the reasons I felt like personally the, the, the kind of research I was doing for the sake of publishing is not really a good like bar to have for my life. I want to do it for the sake of making a progress. But if you had something worthy of saying, you should say it. I think it's our uh, you know duty, as I mentioned, to to contribute back. So that's a, an argument maybe for having a product to focus your research. Yes. And I, I think maybe put differently from principles, I'm trying to get at the kernel of like, you have so much that you could possibly research. Like just how do you prioritize? How do you lead or focus a, a research team that could go in lots of different directions? Like you can't be Bell Labs and just do a little bit of everything and kind of have it wrong. Absolutely. I guess that's the the example that you were just talking about. But even, you know, with a product in mind, like how do you prioritize what you're going to spend your time on? We should talk in a few months when we have the actual product. And then I would love to be more specific about <laughs> how we did that, because I think that answers a lot of these questions. Okay. So the truth is, honestly, having a product helps with narrowing down the focus so much. We are truly laser focused mm-hmm. right now on a particular domain, which drives a lot of our decisions and gives us a lot of insights as to what to prioritize and what not to. So just talking about the issues that I was outlining that we have with the existing you know, models, which kind of applies to the internal in-house models that we have as well, like lack of control, lack of transparency, like not being able to for them to work fast enough, right? Because the user has a certain level of uh, expectation as to how quickly they should respond. These completely change when you go to a new domain. So that just dictates our basically priorities. Uh, it's like we. It's so funny about like year and a half ago or so when Omid and I we were sitting down to just outline these features that we want our AI platform to have. Uh, we literally wrote down the list, like it should be instantaneous in terms of response time. It should have controllability. It should be, I don't know, first start being like single turn and then multi-turn. And then uh, it should be domain general from the get-go, blah, blah. And we literally on the Notion page, which is the software we use for knowledge uh, management, we have a priority assigned to them, which is like high, medium, blah. And then it changes per domain. So if I could share that with you, that Notion page, you would see that we are literally doing it, like the features that even we care about in terms of the technology itself is very much dependent on the domain. And then we keep going back and forth on them, depending on what we're focusing on for a particular recipe quarter. Got it. Got it. Summary there is the product 
you know, if you're very focused on kind of product and features, then that will tell you what you need to figure out to deliver those. And in order to tell me more detail, you'd have to talk about the specific features and research, and that's going to come soon. <laughs> yes, yes. And because I think actually you would really like it. For, for us, we had this dilemma of what our, our first kind of sector would be, first domain would be, and yeah. probably will be even couple when we come out with it. But regardless, the thing that is the closest to our hearts is the one that has a lot to do with some of the things that we were just discussing and it really applies to ev- everyone's day-to-day decision making and it's really exciting mm-hmm. so that's another thing there's like this kind of hidden feature right when you're prioritizing this gigantic space in this gigantic space which has to do with your personal passion <laughs> it really is right when you're especially so people call this product market fit but i think in our world it's called technology market fit mm-hmm. That like founders like us, you have a particular technology that could be fitted into any market, but in any product. And now you have this dilemma of even thinking about the technology being fitted into market, not just the product being fitted into market. So it's really a even a larger search space for a founder to want to to navigate. But yeah, I think that personal passion and personal care is, is something that will play a role. And has played a role in, you know, hopefully a couple of months from now when we chat, I'll happily spill all the beans. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, Nasreen, it was wonderful catching up with you as always. Thanks so much for taking the time and looking forward to next time. Absolutely. Pleasure was mine. Yeah. Looking forward to the next day. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.